Well, it is always a privilege to turn our attention to God's word together. Join me in John 15. John chapter 15. Where we are in the midst of a warning passage. It starts in verse 18 and goes all the way through chapter 16, verse 4. It's different than verses 12 in 17, where we saw Jesus call us to love one another, but now we've turned a corner, and this is a warning passage, specifically the warning about hate, 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 that we will receive from this evil world system, a system ruled by Satan himself. This is a warning of satanic rage. It's promised to come against the believer inner anger because of a Christian's commitment, and this is key, inner anger from the world because of a Christian's commitment not to any political party or social cause or conservative movement, but a commitment to represent Christ and to stand with Christ and to speak freely and boldly without any apology for Christ and his gospel. Look at verse 21, verse 21, but all these things Jesus says, and just think of the persecution we've chronicled over the last few weeks, all of these things, all of this gospel hatred, they will do to you, why? For my name's sake, because you stand with me, because you speak for me, Jesus says, because we identify with Christ, We refuse to compromise his commands. We refuse to change the definition of sin and righteousness. We refuse to be silenced about Christ's gospel. We're unafraid to call sinners to repentance because of my name. This is what we will expect. An example of this kind of gospel hatred we see in Acts chapter five, it doesn't take us very long Acts chapter five, when the religious leaders of the land, they call the apostles in. You can picture the scene. The apostles are standing before the mighty Sanhedrin. It's the very group that turned Jesus over to the Roman soldiers to kill him. They have power. They're now trying to intimidate Jesus' followers into silence. And so what do they do? They call the apostles in. They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of, on behalf of Jesus. This is what Jesus is predicting will come. Anger because of our commitment to Christ. Anger because we speak of his gospel. And Jesus says when we have that kind of commitment and when we are that vocal, we can expect the world's inner anger against Jesus to boil over into external action against us. So here in John 15, you see eight times, eight times, we find the word hate, it's a strong word, to detest, abhor. Eight times that word is used. Two times you find the word persecute. And notice how personal this is. Jesus is saying the bullseye of this promised hatred, this promised persecution will be the Christian. Verse 18, notice how personal the world hates you. Verse 19 at the end, the world hates you. Verse 20, they will persecute you. This is personal. Up down to chapter 16, verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue and kill you. In fact, this is the warning Jesus leaves the apostles with at the end of this chapter before he goes to the Father to pray for them. Look at verse 33. Notice what he leaves them with. In the world, you, personal, you have tribulation. You have distress and trouble and pain. 
You want a picture of this word tribulation. The word is used to describe the stomping of grapes. It's a picture of the worldly pressures, the stomping that believers will face. Pressure is meant to crush our commitment to Christ, to stomp out our testimony of Jesus. Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking directly to his apostles here, but as you trace this promise throughout the New Testament, you see that this is also for every believer who follows. Think of Acts 14. Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples. This is broad now, Christians. Strengthening the the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. Why? Why does it return? Why does he strengthen, encourage? Here's why. Because of this principle, through many tribulations, the same word Jesus uses, through many stompings, squeezings, crushings, through many tribulations, we must, we, Paul, along with the disciples, we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3, all, this is broad, all, who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So all comes from that principle. Look at verse 20, 15, 20. Here's the principle. It's all based on this. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so we are taking our time to work through this text. Because in light of Jesus' promises, we must be prepared for this, readied for this. So let's start by asking a few questions. Let's start here. Are you prepared to bear the personal insults you will receive if you stand in unity with Christ? Are you prepared for that? Are you ready to be marginalized in our society if you refuse to be silenced for Christ's gospel? Are you prepared to lose your job and wages because you will not compromise your gospel convictions? We can put this in biblical terms. Hebrews 11, are you ready to live as a stranger and an exile on the earth? Are you ready to be made a public spectacle through approaches and tribulations? Are you prepared to not shrink back to destruction, but have faith to the preserving of the soul? These are necessary questions that must be answered. Because as we saw last week, chronicling this, as we saw last week, this promised gospel anger is not something that is coming in the future. It is something that is here now. And we saw this, the forms that this can take and and do take, forms of personal insults, public humiliation, blatant intimidation, even physical harm. It's not coming here. And so we're preparing ourselves to remain faithful, girding ourselves up for this promise to endure it. We're doing that by breaking the passage down in a variety of ways. In verses 18 and 19, we saw the satanic source of gospel hatred. We saw Satan behind This, last week in verse 20, we looked at the many faces of gospel hatred. Again, insults, humiliation, intimidation. Which leads then into verses 21 and 24 for this morning. We look at the different roots now, the different roots of gospel hatred. The different roots. We're answering the questions now, why is the gospel so offensive to the world? Why is that the case? Why is the glorious gospel of salvation through faith in Christ, rather than being a sweet aroma unto life, why is it actually a putrid stink?
stench unto death for so many? What are the answers to those questions? Well, start in verse 21. We'll read through verse 24. Here's Jesus' answer. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. These are the roots of gospel hatred. And as we will see, these roots burrow down deep, deep into the heart of the sinner. And these are roots, mark it, these are roots that cannot be removed without the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. We'll see that at the end. Let's unpack each of these three roots of gospel anger and we'll draw out application, you'll see, as we go. Begin with root number one. Why is the gospel so offensive to this world? The world is filled with gospel hatred, root number one, because its eyes are blinded to the glory of God. The world is filled with gospel hatred because, first and foremost, we begin here, because its eyes are blinded to the glory of God. Look at verse 21. But all these things, all this promised anger, persecution, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Why? Because they do not know, they're ignorant of, they're unable to recognize and perceive. They have no eyes to see the one who sent me. This is so severe. Drop down to 16.3. These things they will do because they have not known. They have no perception of the Father or me. So Jesus is talking about the depraved condition of every unbeliever trapped in Satan's domain of darkness, trapped in his evil world system. We must not ever forget, man is not neutral when he comes into this world. Babies look so cute, but they are depraved sinners. And then they grow up and they show it. Right, so every man, they co he comes into this world, eyes darkened. Eyes are darkened, unable to see the glory of the one who sent Christ. Heart is hardened unwilling to receive the grace and the mercy of Jesus. The will is proud, refusing to submit to the authority of both the Father and the Son. And here we see just how blind the unbelieving eyes are. We see just how dark the unbelieving heart is, how trapped in Satan's domain of darkness. We see that here in this example. Remember who Jesus is talking about here, primarily. The ones who have not known the Father in Jesus, the very ones, who are they? They're the very ones who have witnessed the glory of the Father day in and day out. They've witnessed the glory of the Father every time Jesus displayed his miraculous power. This is why Jesus says, look at verse 24, if, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did. So Jesus here, exhibit A, is his miraculous ministry. This is exhibit A of just how blind to the glory of God this evil world system actually is. They do not know God, even though Jesus has performed these miracles. And think of the miracles. Think of the last three years. This is God incarnate showcasing the greatest display of miraculous power throughout all of world history. There's no Old Testament prophet that matches what Jesus does. 
There are 38 miracles specifically recorded in the Gospels. Three years of ministry, 38 specific miracles. That does not include the many passages that note that Jesus heals great multitudes, heals entire towns. So there's thousands of these miracles. Miracles that have spanned every sphere imaginable from healing physical sickness to wielding power over nature to commanding demons to conquering death. Each miracle was instantaneous and complete. When Jesus healed the blind and the deaf, it was always with 20-20 vision, perfect hearing. When Jesus healed the lepers, he not only removed the leprosy, but he also restored the damaged skin. It was perfect, complete. Every miracle was undeniable. There's no smoke and mirrors here. In fact, turn back to chapter 11 for a moment. Even the religious leaders have to acknowledge this. Look at 1147. The religious leaders, they hate Christ. They hate everything that he is doing. They want to explain it away, but notice verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? That's what he's doing. They're undeniable. They tried to blame the miraculous power on Satan early in Jesus' ministry, but that doesn't hold any weight. Each miracle was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah. Jesus did what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. That's what Jesus did. He's the Messiah. He claims to be. Day after day, miracle after miracle. And according to Jesus, every one of his miracles were works, this is John 5, works which the Father had given him to accomplish. Every miracle was a display of his Father's glory that God the Father had indeed sent his Son. Look again at what Jesus says in verse 24. He performed works which no one else, no one else ever did. So why Nicodemus confesses in John 3, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. Why? For no one, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It's a work which no one else ever did. Think of John 9. The crowd now, the crowd says, since the beginning of time, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. Mark 12, we have never seen anything like this. Matthew 9, the demons cast out, the mute man speaks, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So the works which no one has ever done. B.B. Warfield has written this, it's no wonder. When our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which was his home. The number of the miracles which he wrought may easily be underrated. It has been said that in effect he banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. If this is exaggeration, it is pardonable exaggeration. Wherever he went... He brought a blessing, one hem, but of the garment that he wore could medicine whole countries of their pain. One touch of that pale hand could life restore. It's the trailing clouds of glory. These are unique miracles. They're abundant 
miracles. They're unmatched. They're undeniable. They're works which no one else ever did. But Jesus's point in verse 24 is not the astounding nature of his miracles. That's not what he's highlighting here. What he's highlighting here is the stunning nature of Israel's rejection of him in light of his miracles. So read the verse again. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. This is hyperbole. Jesus says if he did not come with such miraculous power, if he did not showcase the glory of the Father through these works, then, again, according to Jesus here, if he didn't do any of that, then that generation would have been justified in rejecting him. Absolutely justified. No miracles meant no Messiah. But the problem was this, he did perform these miracles. They were abundant, they were unique, they were undeniable, they did fulfill messianic prophecy. There was no other explanation that he's been sent by God And yet, what did that generation do? Finish the verse, verse 24. They have both seen these miracles. They've been put on display. They've seen these miracles, and yet still, no, yet still, they hated me and my father, the one who sends Jesus to perform the miracles. They hate me, and they hate my father as well. That's their response. That's how hard their heart is. Just take the... Take a step back. Why did Israel hate and reject and kill Jesus? Why does this evil world system hate and persecute the Christian? The answer is because their eyes are blind. Their eyes are blind. Their hearts are hard to the glory of God. That's the root. Look at verse 25 for a moment. Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. There's no other reason. I did good. I did good for them. Israel's rejection of Jesus, given all the miraculous evidence that showed him to be the son of God, he claimed to be, Israel's rejection in that context is the greatest example of this evil world system's spiritual blindness. But mark this, fast forward to today, mark this. The spiritual blindness of Jesus's generation is not limited to Jesus's generation. This is the paradigm of every unbeliever trapped in Satan's domain of darkness. They are blinded to the glory of Christ. Now I want you to see this, turn to 2 Corinthians 4. That's exhibit A, it's true today, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And notice the parallel that Paul draws here. The parallel to John 15. Start in verse three, 2 Corinthians 4, verse three. Paul writes this, if our gospel is veiled, if it's unseen, unrecognizable, if it's not perceived, our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, the unbeliever. Why is the question? Why? Here it is. Because, verse four, the God of this world, you can see the parallel in John 15, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this is what Satan does to his children. Not only in Jesus' day, but in our day. He blinds their eyes. He shades the glory of Christ's gospel. Jesus used some of these same words in John 12. 12, 37. But though though he had performed so many signs before them, They were not believing in him. Why? They had blind eyes, Jesus says. Blind eyes, hard hearts. 
This is the root, gospel hatred. That's why Paul uses the imagery of darkness in Colossians 1. Unbelievers are trapped in the domain of darkness. They can't see. That's why the gospel of John begins in chapter 1. The light shines in the darkness, but what does the darkness do? It it does not comprehend it. So this is the paradigm. Spiritual blindness, hard hearts. So here's the question. If all that is true, if the God of this world has blinded the eyes of every unbeliever, if unbelievers are trapped within Satan's domain of darkness, let's draw it to our text, if the greatest display of supernatural power did not open the eyes of the spiritually blind or change the hearts of Jesus' enemies, here's the question. Then what hope do we have today? What hope do we have in this cosmic war that Satan is waging against Christ's people? Last time I checked, I cannot raise the dead. Can't do it, and neither can you. So what hope is there? I can't do the miracles of Jesus. What can we possibly do in this war against the world and the God of this world? Well, finish 2 Corinthians, that passage. It gives us the answer. What is the only thing that will give sight to those blinded by the God of this world? Let's ask it this way. How Does God tear up, pull out this root of spiritual blindness? It's not through physical miracles. No, the tool that God uses uses is the proclamation of his gospel. That's how God works today. Look at verse five. Even though the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, here's the answer. We, what do we do? We preach Christ. That's what we do. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. That's what breaks Satan's chains upon his children. It's a proclamation of Christ's gospel. That's what opens blind eyes. The spirit using that word. This is the supernatural tool God uses to pull out this root of satanic hatred. It's our only weapon Why? Look at verse six. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, it goes back to creation, the miracle of creation. What we need today for the unbeliever is a new miracle, a new creation. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts through the proclamation that Christ Jesus is Lord, He's the one who's shown in our hearts the light from darkness to light, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the only answer. That's the only tool. But then note what Paul adds here immediately after this. It fits so closely with Jesus' promise in John 15, the hatred of the world. Look at verse 7. In the midst of proclaiming this glorious gospel that does a supernatural work of new creation, look at verse seven. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. We're breakable jars. According to the world, we're foolish. We're the garbage barrel. But all of that is by design. Why? Continue, so that the surpassing greatness of the power, the power to change the blind eyes, to change the hard heart, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. All glory goes to him. Application here, do not ever underestimate your testimony for Christ in the spiraling world of sin. Again, it's the only weapon we have. But now notice the context of this witness. Could even say, when is this witness most powerful? Verse eight. It's when we are 
afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 10, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. If we proclaim Jesus as Lord, it is inevitable, not only in John 15, but here, it is inevitable that we will fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We'll be afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. We'll be Satan's bullseye for exhausting his anger against Jesus. Again, why? All by design. Divine plan continues so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body through us. So in our suffering for Christ, when our suffering for Christ is united with our testimony of Christ, then the life of Jesus, salvation only found in Christ, is given to the unbeliever. It's in that context. Finish verse 12. Here's the conclusion. So in light of all of this, the power of the gospel, the world's hatred against us, so death, persecution, gospel hatred, so death, all of that works in us. Suffering for the gospel is all by design. It works in us. And in so doing, life in you. Eternal life to the unbeliever. This is our hope. This is our calling. And this is why it does not matter what takes place in this world. Drop down to verse 16. This is why Paul can write this. Therefore, we do not what? We do not lose heart. Because there's nothing the world can do to affect this gospel, this power. We do not lose heart. No matter how dark a blinded eye might be, and no matter the crushing blows a believer might face, and no matter the spiral into sin we might be on, back to verse six, we do not lose heart because the Lord is able to shine in the darkest of hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The application is this for us. In the midst of gospel hatred, we must never underestimate the power of Christ's gospel. We must not turn to anything other than Christ's gospel to perform this work. Look back to John 15. You're gonna see this here. John 15, Jesus says the same thing. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, again, you will be hated, it's a promise. You will be rejected, that's expected. But look at the end of verse 20. That's not the entire story. There's actually a glimmer of hope here. Here's the glimmer of hope, end of verse 20. If they listen to my word, if they listen to my gospel, they will what? Listen to yours also. Not everyone rejected Jesus in that three-year ministry. Not every eye was blind to his miracles. Not every deaf ear was deaf to his words. You have the once blind man, he believed. Nicodemus believed. Joseph of Arimathea believed. These 11 faithful believed. And Jesus says there is hope here, but it's only when we speak the word of Christ, my word. If we are faithful to uphold Christ's gospel, though many will hate us for it, there will also be some who will listen to it, accept it, believe it, be rescued from Satan's domain of darkness. So this is the first root of gospel hatred. The world is filled with gospel hatred because its eyes are blinded to the glory of God. And it's a root that can only be pulled out through the proclamation of Christ's word. Leads to a second root here. 
Root number two, second reason this world is filled with gospel hatred. Root number two, because the gospel inflames the guilt this world tries so desperately to suppress. The world is filled with gospel hatred because this gospel inflames the guilt this world tries so desperately to suppress. Notice verse 22, and this is so applicable for us. Verse 22, it's a very interesting statement Jesus makes. First reading, it seems odd. If I had not come and spoken my gospel in context, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. It's an odd statement. We know what it can't mean. We know what it can't mean. Jesus can't mean that sinners did not exist before he came to earth and spoke. The Bible's clear. There's no man who does not sin. That's 1 Kings. It can't mean that no one is considered by God to be sinful until they hear the gospel. It can't mean that. We're guilty before God as we, when we come into this world. So what does Jesus mean with the words, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin? It means this. If Jesus did not come and proclaim his gospel to that generation, then they could have continued in their feigned ignorance of their sinfulness before the Lord. They could have continued to deny their sinfulness. They could have continued to excuse it away, and to justify it. They could have continued to live, live as if they were right before God, even though Jesus has just said that they did not know God. This is what the unbeliever does. This is what the unbeliever is so desperate to do. He wants to ease his guilt before God by explaining his sin away. Ease his guilt before God by pretending it's not there. And so he does everything possible, everything possible to suppress, Romans 1, suppress, hold it down, restrain the truth of the gospel in unrighteousness. And one of those ways to suppress the truth is by silencing the gospel, silencing Christ's people. They need to do this, why? Because Christ's gospel exposes the very sinfulness the unbeliever does not want to admit about himself. Christ's gospel bears heavy upon a sinner's conscience. Christ's gospel creates a guilt before God that is unbearable to the proud heart. It goes back to what I said last week and in the article that I write for the newspaper. I am not surprised at those comments because if you know the town where we were, it's probably, probably the first time they ever heard the gospel. And so now the conscience, the conscience is pricked there's no answer now. They've tried to hide it, suppress it. Saw this back in John chapter three. For any, uh, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Why does a sinful heart hate the light of Christ? Why does he hate holiness? Here's why. Because he's afraid. For fear that his deeds, the deeds he wants to hide, and keep suppressed for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And if the gospel is proclaimed, all of those efforts to explain sin away will be for naught. And all of those attempts to silence the conscience and smother the guilt will come to an end. And when the gospel is proclaimed, that sinner will be laid bare in his sin. He has no place to hide stands before a holy judge of his soul. He has no one to plead his case. That's the guilty conscience. Well, I'll turn to Romans 1. This is what we see. We see it play out in Jesus' day. Again, that's exhibit A. We see it play out today. Romans chapter 1, turn there. 
start in verse 19. Verse 19 tells us that every unbeliever knows, every unbeliever knows that he stands guilty before God. He knows that he deserves of eternal wrath. This is the flow. He knows it within his heart. Why? Look at verse 19. Because God made it evident to them, to every unbeliever. God makes it evident. Chapter two will say that the law of God is actually written in our heart. It's been made evident. And so what does then the unbeliever do in this situation? How does this evil world system try to suppress its guilt before this God? First, verse 23, first, they redefine who God is. They redefine who God is. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. They bring God down to their level. They invent a God that, who they can appease, a God they can satisfy by their own works, a God who is not angry at their sin. Let's create our own God. Which then out of necessity leads to verse 25, and it's a redefining of the gospel, not only of God, but now of the gospel. And so verse 25, they exchange the truth of God, the truth of his holiness, the reality of his wrath, the certainty of his judgment, they exchange that truth for a lie, a lie of their own making. All of it trying to suppress the truth, ease the conscience, which then leads to verse 32 and what they must do. Notice, and although they know the ordinance of God, they know this, in their heart, they know the ordinance of God. What is that ordinance? That those who practice such things are worthy of death. Every believer knows that. Every believer knows that he must stand before God in judgment. And it's written on the heart. And so what does the world try to do then to suppress this truth, ease this guilt? Answer, they replace now God's condemnation of them with acceptance from other sinners. That's verse 32. They give hearty approval to those who practice the same evils they practice. So God condemns them, but they're now going to approve others. Why? So those other sinners can approve them. They'll applaud other sinners so that they'll be applauded in their sin. Let's bring it to our day. Again, verse 32, knowing the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, knowing they stand in God's courtroom guilty. In God's courtroom, what does our evil world system do? It legalizes sin. They're guilty in God's courtroom. Let's legalize sin in our courtroom. Give hearty approval. Let's hold a rally. Let's hold a rally with a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of sinners who agree with us and do what we do why? To calm our fears. Let's put virtuous names on sin. Let's call it a human right or a moral virtue. Why? To suppress the truth, to ease the conscience. Drop down to chapter two. Notice, though, the problem with all of this. Chapter two, verse 15. The law of God, though, is written on our hearts. And so what is taking place through all of this? Verse 15, the conscience is continually bearing witness still. The conscience is continually bearing witness. The conscience is burning within the sinner and their thoughts accuse them. They can't get away from it. I'll turn back to John 15. All of that work now, All of that work that this evil world system does to suppress this truth, all of those defense mechanisms, all of those efforts to smother the guilty conscience burning inside of them, all of those efforts come crashing down when we speak one word. 
That's the problem. When the gospel is proclaimed, finish Jesus' statement in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. They could have continued to suppress the truth, pretend it's not there. But the problem is I did come, I did proclaim this gospel, and thus now they have what? They have no excuse. They have no excuse for their sin. They can't ease their guilt any longer. They can't explain their sin away. They can't pretend it's not there. They can't cover it up. And so what is their only option? They've tried everything on the inside to suppress it. What's their only option? Back up to verse 19, here's the only option. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world because of this, the world what? The world hates you. And a slave is not greater than his master, so verse 20, the only option is if they persecuted me who spoke this gospel, revealing their sin, they're gonna persecute you. It's Jesus' point in John 7, the world hates me, why? Why does the world hate me? It's not because we're really nice. The world hates me, Jesus says, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. That's why. So understand this. When you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you proclaim the gospel of Jesus, understand what you are doing. You are inflaming the guilt this world tries so desperately to suppress. And that's why everything flows in John 15. Leads into root number three. Root number three of gospel hatred. The world is filled with gospel hatred because Christ's gospel is too exclusive. It is too narrow. It is too restrictive. It is too intolerant. I'll just state this. We've looked at it in the past. Notice what Jesus says in verse 23. He who hates me hates my father also. It's just the flip side of John 14, that I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the father except through me. It's just the flip side of that. If you love me, come through me, you get the father. If you hate me, the father rejects you. Over and over, Jesus has said the only path that leads to heaven is a path that travels through him. And thus, to hate Christ is to hate the Father, to reject Christ is to be rejected by the Father. It's how united the Son and the Father are. There's no middle ground, no middle ground. There's no other way to glory. You cannot claim to know God if you do not love Jesus. And that is intolerant and that is restrictive. Does not matter how spiritual you are, how religious, remember who he's talking to. They were the religious leaders of the day. There's no other savior but him. There's no other gospel but his. I just bring it to today. We are in a world that loves its options, aren't we? We're in a world that champions its broad-mindedness prizes its tolerance as the pinnacle of all morality, clings to its autonomy to choose its own path. And thus it should come as no surprise that the exclusivity of Christ's gospel will generate hate from this world. Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? These are the roots of gospel hatred. Blind eyes, guilty consciences, and proud hearts. And there are roots that burrow down deep, obviously. There are roots that can only be pulled out by the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus promises in verse 26. Notice, in the midst of all of this hatred, Jesus says, I'm not leaving you alone. Far from it. Verse 26, the helper is coming. I'm sending him to you. The helper will come and he will take our words, our testimony, 
and testify about me. That's why the gospel proclamation is the power of God unto salvation. Because the spirit takes those words to change the heart. So we have the spirit on our side. That's pretty good. Look at chapter 16, verse eight. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit will seal us and the Spirit will testify through us. There's our hope. Which is why Jesus says, notice verse 33. Jesus tells them, in the world you have tribulation, but remember this, take what? Take courage. Take courage. Why? Because we have his gospel and we have his spirit. What else do we need? What else do we want? In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world and thus I have sent you my spirit. We'll pick it up here next week. Father, you have given us a great reminder that we have the spirit of promise that will indeed change the hearts and regenerate depraved people. Your spirit that will open up blind eyes to see the light of your son's glory or your glory in his face. We praise you for that power. We praise you that your gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And yet we confess now that we have not been bold in that. We have not been outspoken. We have not had those conversations, though doors have been open. We have waited. We have, we've prayed for opportunities, but we've never actually taken those opportunities that you've given us. Let us find hope in you. Let us rest on your sovereignty your goodness and your grace. Let us be expectant that your spirit will indeed change hearts that you have placed within our lives and cause us, Lord, to love you to the point that we will obey what you call us here to do, to speak on your behalf, to proclaim a risen savior, to call people to repentance. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.